I also have the great privilege of introducing you to Dr. Stanley John. Um, he is here from uh, Alliance Theological Seminary. He is the Director of Missions and Intercultural Studies at Alliance Theological Seminary. He's also an assistant professor, and he is a passionate missions mobilizer. His heart is all about missions, and I would like to ask you if you would give him just a very, very warm welcome. Thank you. <laughs> well, good morning, everybody. I guess it's afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, <laughs> Pastor Glenn just told me, you can preach as long as you want. <laughs> so you'll get the full sermon. I've had to cut parts out in all the other services. It's great to be with all of you. Um, before I say anything else, I've got to say thank you for giving us Kelvin Walker. I just got a text from him just before I got up. Uh, I just, some of you might know, Kelvin uh, has been elected the district superintendent of the Metro District of the Alliance, which covers uh, parts of New Jersey uh, and New York City. And uh, this is just two weeks ago, so we're thrilled about, and he's the first African-American district superintendent that the Christian Mission Alliance has. So this is a major, major, major uh, celebration for how God is using Kelvin. He's a wonderful brother to many of you, and he's a gift to us. Uh, so I also bring you greetings from the Alliance Theological Seminary, which is the seminary for the Christian Missionary Alliance. Uh, we have the privilege of raising a whole new generation of leaders for the church, amen? And some of my greatest joy is to look out at some of our students and, you know, but teaching can be a bit of a, um, what's the word? Uh, not, not so encouraging sometimes because it's like planting a tree. You gotta wait 20 years to start seeing that the tree is actually grown, you know? Uh, but some of our students uh, just bring us great, great joy. One of our students just graduated uh, this past year uh, and they came from Palestine, uh, from Bethlehem Bible College, studied there and then came to ATS to study and uh, this past May graduated and now he's a professor teaching at Bethlehem Bible College in Palestine. So we have these amazing students that we receive that we get to uh, help raise. So thank you for your prayers and for your support for us. Uh, I should also say one more thing before I uh, get going about the sermon. It's about what you're doing with Kayak. I came to the U.S. when I was 18. I was born in, uh, born in Kuwait in a Muslim country. I was raised in an Indian family. Uh, loved God all my life, but felt called to ministry and found a Bible school online. Uh, some of you might know what a Celeron processor is, a 333 megahertz Celeron processor that we got secondhand. Uh, and, and I hopped on it and just started looking for Bible schools, found a small Bible school in Rhode Island, hopped on a plane and came over, and uh, that's how I started my uh, theological education. And, but when I came, I got put on this special list because it was right after 9-11, and it was 2003 during Operation Iraqi Freedom when I came, and uh, they had created a system where they put people from certain backgrounds and certain countries on this list. And what that meant is every time I left the country, I'd be whisked away into a separate room. And every time I entered the country, I'd go through regular immigration and then go to the separate room where they could keep us there for three to four hours 
and I would miss my connection every single time or when people were coming to pick me up from the, from the airport, I'd have to tell them, no, I'll get done with everything. And then it was just a very painful process because, you know, you just feel very marginalized and very vulnerable. And I would look around and, of course, the only people that are in the room are people from other Muslim countries, you know. And uh, thank God, a couple years ago, they got rid of the program because they knew it was not really effective anyway. And they got rid of it. But I'd get through these immigration lines and I'd have to show my I-20, which lists on its seminary, you know? And so these immigration officers would look at the paperwork, look at me and say, this is not for people like you. And I'm like, yeah, they get me off. <laughs> Why do you keep having me come here for like 12 years, you know? Uh, but I share all that to say it can be incredibly challenging and difficult for especially people from other countries. We have a member at the church where I serve. I serve in an Alliance Church in White Plains. Uh, f we have a brother who's been coming to our church who is an international uh, scholar that is here from a country that I can't name uh, from Central Asia that's a Muslim country. There's not one legal church that exists in that country today. And he came here as a Muslim scholar and um, uh, while he was he uh, here, one of his neighbors who's a member of our church and the choir invited him to come to our church. He came uh, received Jesus um, and a few months ago was baptized uh, but somehow word has got back to his country that uh, he has um, become a believer and it's very very challenging very difficult I share all that to say there are these incredible you know and so we're writing letters and various things in order to help him but I share all that to say there are these amazing challenges migrant people's face from countries and from backgrounds that are inc makes them inc incredibly vulnerable. So I can't thank you enough for your support of a ministry like this, because this is what Jesus would do, yeah? He cares for the orphans, the widows, and the poorest, people that nobody wanted to talk about, people that are marginalized in society, and that's what Jesus cared for, and Jesus calls us to do that, amen? The other thing I should also mention is being a missions professor, we talk a lot about contextualization, right? Contextualization is about taking the gospel and making it relevant to culture so that the gospel can be understood within culture. So we study culture, we study context, and we want the gospel to be as closely understood within a particular context. But you know, there are sometimes the gospel can be so conformed to the culture that the gospel is syncretized. It becomes syncretistic, and the gospel loses its essential meaning, and it becomes compromised. And that's why, my friends, even as we talk about contextualizing and the gospel's relevance in context, we also talk about this other thing, which is the gospel's call to be prophetic within culture which is when we live out the gospel, oftentimes the gospel stands in great contrast and pushes back against what the culture says is what is valued within society. And often when we live out the gospel and you act in obedience, this is a prophetic challenge to the culture and to the powers there be that we are children of God, amen? So may you be a prophetic church, I pray. May you be prophetic people that live out the gospel everywhere God sends you, amen? All right, I gotta start preaching. Y'all hold on to your seats because I have a habit of speaking fast. And when I moved to New York, I started speaking faster. 
All right, so I'm told that you're in your missions month, and this is closing out your missions month, and that your theme for this year, for this uh, month, is about contested kingdoms, as of course these chess pieces show about this fight. There's this kingdom at war, so to speak, and there's this kingdom of God that is fighting for your redemption, right? God wants all of our hearts to be redeemed on fire for him. And then there's this kingdom of the devil that wants to dissuade you and keep you from following Jesus. So this notion of the kingdom is something that Jesus was very familiar with, right? He approached his first inaugural sermon is the spirit of God is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And then he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and be baptized, John the Baptist said. And the kingdom of God, he kept talking about the kingdom of God. And yet, at his crucifixion and at his trial, here's Pilate. He says, so you're, you're a king. And Jesus says, no, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was of this world, then my servants would fight for me. Remember that? It's it, The picture what Jesus is saying is this. The entire world is set up to defend the king, isn't it? All the pawns and all the castles and the bishops and the knights, all of these people are dispensable so that the king can be defended, right? And this is how the entire world is set up. And Jesus takes that and flips it on its head and says, if my kingdom was of this world, that's what I would do. I'd make all these people die for me. My servants would fight for me, but my kingdom is not of this world. Therefore, I have come to lay my life down for my people. That's the kingdom that we have. That's the picture that we have of the cross. It is a kingdom, yes, but it's not a kingdom of this world. And that is why this, this picture of the pervasive spread of the gospel and how God's kingdom moves in this earth is really a very eschatological picture that we see in the book of Revelation, right? When John the apostle is on Patmos Island, he sees the vision, which of course handles Messiah capture so beautifully in tune, which is the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he shall reign for ever and ever. Okay, aren't you glad I'm not singing today? <laughs> but then it goes on, right? So there's this picture that the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our God and that God's reign and rule will expand and cover the whole earth. And that's why in Romans it says, one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And of course, again, you see in Revelation where before the throne room of God, every tongue, every tribe, every nation is represented singing the praises of God. And then you have in Habakkuk, and I love how Habakkuk talks about this, which is in that last day, Habakkuk says, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the seas. It's this pervasive movement of the Holy Spirit. So there is this beautiful vision of where the world is going, this fullness of the spread of the gospel that beckons us forward, and it's led by the one who laid down his life on the cross, isn't it? So the cross teaches us, Dr. Timothy Tennant from Asbury Seminary would say, the cross teaches us that God accomplishes some of his greatest victories under a cloak of failure. The cross teaches us that God accomplishes some of his greatest victories under a cloak of failure. What, what this means is the way that Christ's victories are won 
my friends, is not in triumphalism. It's not in beating somebody over the head with a Jesus cross, right? It's not in triumphalism, but it's in meekness. It is not in conquest like people used to do a few years ago, right? But it is through the cross, and it's not in strength and machismo and whatnot, but it's through weakness. If this is the path that Jesus took to conquer the world and to redeem the whole world, then why do we have a love affair with power and prestige and pride? Amen? The path that Jesus has shown us is of meekness, is of weakness, because when I am weak, then I am strong, Paul says, right? I will boast even more in my weakness. Then why do we stand up and we want to be so closely associated with the center of culture and with power? We embrace the margins. We embrace the vulnerable. We embrace those who have been cast away, because that is what the cross does. Amen? So the question I want to reflect on for the next few moments is very simple. How did this movement of Jesus followers from the early church, this ragtag group of foot and mouth disease kind of people who kept putting, you know, and then this Holy Ghost comes and the fire breaks out and the Holy, the mega church was planted on the first day, 3,000 people. How did this movement go on to fill the whole earth? My friends, the movement spread not through triumphalism, power, or pride, but through a global movement of kingdom partnerships. And that's really what I want to reflect about today. What is the nature of these partnerships? Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and I'm going to read from verse 1 through 5, although I'm going to preach from chapter 8 and chapter 9, but I'll read only 5, all right? 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Here's what Paul says. And now, brothers and sisters... We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that with the same spirit with which you inspired these scriptures, Lord, would you inspire our hearts today. Our hearts are open to you. Lord, we need a word from you. Will you make these scriptures come alive in our hearts that we might be fruitful in your kingdom? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God, my friends, has called us to this picture of kingdom partnerships for the sake of gospel advance. And the picture that we have here that Paul is painting is of the Macedonian church. And he's reminding the Corinthian church saying, guys, you need to take a look at the Macedonian church because the local church is this picture that we have of a vibrant, transforming, light-shining, gospel-bearing, Christ-witnessing communities of faith. And so here it begins in chapter 8 about how this church, this Macedonian church, has been a witness. Paul says, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty resulted a welled up in rich generosity. It's this building up of this perfect ingredients 
to be a generous person, right? What would you, if I was Paul, I'd say, well, in order for you to be raising money, here's what you need. You need somebody with a lot of Benjamins, right? You got to have some money. And secondly, this person's got to have the willingness to give and some level of empathy moved by the needs of people. So you've got to have resources, right? And you've got to have the desire to want to give and be moved by various needs. And that will result in a wonderful faith commitment or offering, right? That's what I would say. But Paul takes this and flips it on its head. He says it was in the midst of a very severe trial and their overflowing joy and in the context of extreme poverty that resulted in rich generosity. And Paul writes about the Macedonian church back in Philippians. So if you remember, he's writing to the church in Philippi in chapter one, and here's what he says about this church. He says, I thank my God Every time I remember you, first of all, when you remember people, what's the first thought that's coming to your mind? Gratefulness is not necessarily my first thought, you know what I mean? So he says, my thank God every time I, and then he says, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Second of all, I'm not always praying. I'm sometimes like, oh God, please help them, you know what I mean? But Paul is saying, I'm praying with joy. Why? Why the gratitude, Paul? And why this joyfulness, Paul? And Paul says in verse 5, it is because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, I am grateful and I am joyful because of this group, because as I've gone out to preach the gospel, left Jerusalem, went to Antioch in my first missionary journey, went through all of the then known Asia Minor, and then all of these places where I've gone, this Philippian church has been partners with me. They have supported the great work that I've been doing. But Paul says this church was formed in the context of a very severe trial. What is Paul talking about? If you'll remember, I think Pastor Rock talked about this last week, which is the first missionary journey. The first missionary journey, they had all gathered together in one accord. Not, notice it's not a Camry. That's why we believe accord is the <laughs> biblical vehicle, right? So they all gathered in one accord. They're praying, and some of you will get it slow. <laughs> right, so they all gathered and they're praying and then the Holy Spirit speaks and what does the Holy Spirit say? Set apart Paul and Barnabas for the ministry. So you have this clear voice of the Holy Spirit. You have this sending forth and this amazing signs and miracles that follow. But in the second missionary journey is when the Philippian church was planted. We do not see any of this. How did the second missionary journey start? It started at the end of chapter 15 of Acts and at the beginning of chapter 16. And it started with a big kaboom. Paul and Barnabas, this wonderful mission team, has got a major conflict. Right? Barnabas wants to bring around John Mark, and Paul's like, uh-uh, he deserted us last time. We're not bringing him. And so Paul takes Silas, starts off on this missionary journey. There's no voice of the Holy Spirit. There's no clear direction where God wants them to go. But they set out, and they start traveling through. And we're told he tries to go preach in Asia. And the Bible says the Spirit of Jesus forbid him to preach there. So he goes into Phrygia and Galatia. And again, the Spirit of Jesus forbid him to preach there. And then he concluded, all right, there's this whole community up here by the the Mediterranean Sea called Bithynia, and I'm going to try to go preach there. And they get there, again, the Spirit of Jesus forbid them to preach there. You all know the story? How many of you have prayed, God, just tell me what to do and I'll do it? Right? All of us, if you've been a Christian for any length of time. But notice the angst that Paul is feeling. 
the pain. Now listen, I don't know about you, but there's no Delta Sky Miles going on here, you know? There's no free upgrades to business class and like nice little drinks on the side as you're going to preach to God. There's none of that here. This is donkey airlines, you know? And there's no Birkenstocks. I mean, he's probably walking on some sandal that he got from Walmart. And I mean, you get my point, right? So this is no plush living. There's no Hilton honors that he can check into. He's sleeping by the donkey and trying to preach the gospel as he's making his way for months until he can't hear anywhere. He doesn't know what the Holy Spirit is saying until he gets to Troas. And in Troas, the Bible says he got the vision of the man from Macedonia saying, please come and help us. You remember that? It took months and pain before he finally heard that this is where God wants them to go. So he gets there. So there's this angst, this severe trial that Paul is talking about is this painful angst that led him to arrive at this place. But then he gets there and what does he find? There's no red carpets. Some of us think once we hear from God, once we get a plan, there's going to be amazing fruitfulness, right? But that's not what Paul got. Paul gets there. There's a beach prayer meeting, a women's prayer meeting. No men to visit him, just Lydia and this little posse at the beach. He goes, shares the gospel with her, and then they get saved. And then he's arrested, thrown in jail. And in jail, Paul and Silas is what? They've been beaten to a pulp. Their backs are torn apart. Their hands are in shackle. And then what do they do? They start singing. Now, if it was me, I'd say, Lord, oh gosh, man, you know, I'd be saying, Jesus, you know, I don't know, get me out of here, you know what I mean? Uh, but I wouldn't be singing praises to God. But the Bible says God sent an earthquake, the shackles fell off, the jail doors came open, and then all of a sudden, the jailer is about to kill himself, and Paul says, no, don't do that, we're all here. Remember that moment? And the jailer takes them, bandages his wounds, pours in the wine, and they all takes care of him. And that night, he says, how can I be saved? His whole family, the jailer and his entire household is baptized. My friends, the church at Philippi was planted in the jail. The church at Philippi was not planted in a nice little theater in a hotel room or whatever with some nice little drinks on the side, right? The church was planted in the prison. So when Paul says in the midst of a very severe trial, he's talking about deep angst that he's been through, deep pains that he has borne so that the gospel could take root in this community. Here's my point, my friends. It is the gospel advances in the midst of suffering and weakness. We think the gospel advances when we've got some nice suits on and we've got some nice mics on and we've got preached the gospel. Uh -uh. The gospel advances in the midst of trial and tribulation and in weakness because that is when the gospel shines forth best. Some of you might have heard the story of Wang Mingdao. Wang Mingdao was a Chinese house church leader, house church pastor. He was born in the early 1900s. And uh, at the Boxer Rebellion, the Boxer Rebellion was a time when the government of China, the communist government, well, the, they were so antagonistic against Christians, they killed over 10,000 Christians in the early 1900s in the Boxer Rebellion. It was that time when, when he was born. And when he was, the year before he was born, his father took his own life. And so he's born into a home of a single mom, and his mom names him uh, the equivalent to s the son of an iron heart or iron son, uh, hoping that he would not be ever deterred by these vulnerabilities and, and not having a father, he'd be this iron. So, so in many, many ways, he became a very tough personality, kind of like Iron Man, but without the suit, you know? 
And so he goes off and then he meets the Lord much later. And when he accepted Jesus into his life, he decided to change his name from this iron son to Wang Ming Dao, which means one who understands the word of God. And so then he became a pastor and he began traveling through all the villages and towns and started preaching the gospel and planting churches. Later, when the communist government took over and became in power, especially in the early 50s, they required all churches to be registered with the Chinese government. And Wang Mingdao refused. He said, I will not register these churches with the government because he said, only Jesus is the Lord of the church. And he was charged with anti-government sentiments and he was arrested and he was thrown in jail. While he was in jail, he was severely tortured and persecuted. And he was put in solitary confinement and under significant duress, they forced him to sign a confession and recant his faith. And so after his recantation, they released him from prison and he came back out. And then he says, when he came out, he said, his mind returned to him. Because he was under so much duress, he, he felt like his mind had left him. And then when he came back out, he said, my mind returned to me and I felt like Polycarp of the ancient day, of the early church. So if you remember, Polycarp was the disciple of Apostle John who was martyred, well, he was arrested, he was going to be burned at the stake, but then he recanted his faith, and they released him, and Polycarp went back, and he said, I have denied my Lord, please take me back, and at 86 years of age, they tied him to the stake, and was about to burn him alive, and his Roman captors pleaded with him, and said, please, you're an 86-year-old man, please, we don't want to kill you, and he said, I would gladly, I will never deny my faith in Jesus, I will gladly give up my life and he said if that's what polycarp did he went on to say i am peter i am judas take me back and so they re-arrested him and his wife and they put him in jail for the next 20 years he was released i think in his late 70s he was released as a much later in life and in fact that day when he was arrested it was august 7 1954 and he was preaching the sermon. He was called, the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And so in jail, every day he would wake up and he would sing a hymn by Fanny Crosby. Some of you might know this hymn. It was all the way my savior leads me. What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell, for I know whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. Paul says, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity, amen? And then Paul continues in verse four, he says, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. They pleaded with, urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. Notice the verbs that Paul is using in these passages. He's talking about yearning 
to be part of the work of God. Of course, in the passage, you hear about the sacrificial nature of their giving. It says entirely on their own. They were not responding to external pressure or coercion. But there was a certain calling arising from within that makes them yearn to be part of the kingdom of God. You all know those TV preachers who say, give $10 and you're going to get $100. Hallelujah. You remember those people? Sow your seed, brother, and you're going to get a harvest in Jesus. You know, you know what the Greek word for that is? Baloney. Garbage. <laughs> right? This, this self-achievement and self-advancement for the, you know, giving for the sake of self, it's got nothing to do with the gospel. The kind of giving that we see in the gospel is there's a self-motivation of giving, saying, God, please let me be part of your kingdom. It says they urgently pleaded for the privilege of kingdom partnership. This is the ultimate FOMO. Some of you are like, what is FOMO? You'll get this eventually, right? So it's hashtag FOMO, FOMO, fear of missing out. It's like you're on Facebook, you're scrolling through on social media saying, oh, all these people are having such a nice life and I'm just sitting over here in Pittsburgh doing nothing with my life. You know, it's this fear of missing out. There's all of these amazing things happening out there. Some of you are maybe even on social media in the church thinking, oh, I gotta be part of all of this stuff going on. It's this fear of missing out. There's all this stuff going on. But my friends, this is like the real FOMO. They're saying, God, we don't want to miss out of what you are doing in your kingdom, right? Notice the words. It's this, these words are of deep conviction that yearns to be part of something greater. It's like this picture that we have in the Gospels of the merchant that was traveling. He found a pearl of great value, sold everything he got, and then bought the pearl. Remember that? Or the traveler, he found the field with the treasure, sold everything he got. He said, I got to have that. Right, it's this picture of total abandonment for everything that God has. Here's my point, my friends. So first is that in the midst of our pain, God brings some of his greatest fruitfulness. But here's the second thing. A vision of God's kingdom work creates in us a yearning to be part of the great work of God. So maybe walk out of the sanctuary, not now, my friends, later, all right? Maybe walk out of the sanctuary saying, God, Help me be part of this great work that you're doing all across the world. Notice, he continues, Paul, in verse 13 and 14. Here's what he says. Our desire is not that others might be relieved <coughs> while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. He says the goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much and the one who gathered little did not have too little. What is Paul doing here? Paul doesn't succumb to the notion that one group works harder and therefore is rich and another group is lazy and hence poor. He recognizes that this is a principle of gathering from the field which God owns. That God has provided the field and our location toward the field and the access to fields and the ability to gather from the field shapes how much resources we might have access to. And what Paul does is the key motivation then is that those who gathered much can share the resources with those who don't have much. The picture that Paul paints is of interdependence, of kingdom partnerships. Some, you know, some people think it's all about independence and self, you know, self-supporting uh, self and so on and so forth. But that's not the gospel that we see in the, in the Bible. What we see is churches banding together, supporting across the world. 
a few years ago, a couple years ago, I was traveling throughout some of the churches that uh, our ministry that I connected to has planted in India. And as I was traveling through, I was traveling with one of my dear friends. His name is Freo Tamrat. Freo is from Ethiopia, and he is a 6263 tall African man, a theologian. He's the president of Ethiopia Theological College in Addis Ababa. And we're traveling and preaching through all these towns, you know? And typically, in, you know, in many parts of the world, in, in India especially, uh, when people see uh, foreigners, especially Americans, especially white people, they think white people from America equals dollars, you know what I mean? It's got a lot of cash signs. So, so, and a lot of these pastors, I mean, they get paid very little. You know, salaries are about 100 to 150 or $200, and it's very hard for them to, and so the money that they're asking is not for themselves, it's for the work that they're doing. So he, uh, so all, so what's one of the most beautiful things is when you have African leaders, all of a sudden, it's like throwing a wrench in their thinking, saying, okay, this guy's a foreigner, but this guy's not white. Does he have money, you know? So Pastor Jason, I'm in Chennai, and with Pastor Jason, and uh, <laughs> we're preaching in his church, and Pastor Jason asked me, can I, can I ask him to support us? And I'm like, Pastor Jason, he is from Ethiopia. Ethiopia is one of the poorest countries in Africa and one of the poorest countries in the world. He doesn't have any money. And I mean, again, Jason is not asking for himself. Jason planted a church in his house, which was a hut 20 years ago. And that church has now grown to over a thousand members. And out of that church, Jason has raised up and sent 60 church planters. So he has planted 60 churches out of his church. So he's saying, I have to support these people Maybe they can help and support the salary of these pastors. That's what he's thinking. So I tell him, man, he doesn't have any money. And then all of a sudden, Jason flips and Jason says, oh, I do not know. Can we support him? Can we support him? Out of the midst of extreme severe trials and extreme poverty, there's this overflowing joy that says, I want to be part of God's kingdom. And then finally, Paul says in chapter 9 and verse 11 through 15, at the end of chapter 9, here's what he says, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Notice what Paul is saying is there is the giver and then there is the agency through which they are giving the stewardship piece. And then that, minist that work, that, that the gifts that have been used for the ministry. And he says, through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. So it's not only meeting needs of people, but somehow these gifts are triggering thanksgiving. And then in verse 13, because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in verse 14, and in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you 
thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So Paul paints this picture that in the midst of severe trial, the pains and angst that we feel are the fertile ground for God's fruitfulness. And then Paul says, once we see a picture of the kingdom work of God, we will say, God, please let me be part of this. And then lastly, Paul says, somehow our obedience to what God is doing in the world and what God is stirring in our hearts, it says, results in thanksgiving to God. He says, in other words, our response to kingdom partnerships becomes the catalyst for global praise to God. Can you imagine the type of obedience that becomes a catalyst for people all over the world praising God for you? That's the type of faith steps I think that God is calling us to do. Y'all have time for one more story? Maybe I'll just go away. Y'all, you still have time? (laughs) It's a Pittsburgh story. It's a wonderful story of a young man named Abraham. Abraham comes to the U.S. You know, he had, when he came, he came in the early 80s to Pennsylvania. And uh, by then, he had already planted several churches in India. He had studied, he had been through Bible school, and he got admission at this Bible Institute somewhere in Pennsylvania, hopped on a plane, got the visa, and came over to the U.S. to study. But then when he got to the Bible school, they realized this guy's got a lot of education. He's already planted churches. He said, why don't you just teach? So he starts teaching at this Bible Institute, and there's this pastor in Pittsburgh that hears about him and says to him, Abraham, you really have God's call on your life. And I want to help you get the further training that you need. And he says, you really need to go to Fuller Seminary in California. And this pastor in Pittsburgh supported his tuition to go to Fuller. He got his master's degree, and then in 1989, he graduated with his PhD in intercultural studies. And Abraham and his family went back to India in 89 and started a Bible institute. Abraham is my uncle. And he goes to Bible, he went back to Kerala and starts a Bible institute with the vision of raising church planters. And so all of a sudden he realizes there are these people that have this vision for church planting now, which he received because of his training, and now he starts sending them out. And soon he realizes there are people that are sent out, but there are no churches, there is no land, there's no buildings, there's no people that will support them to go. So he starts sending support to these students to go out and plant churches. And then they realize these churches that have been planted are asking and saying, we have children in our communities that are so poor, there's no schools, many of them are orphans, will you take them in? So he started children homes in multiple parts of India, in many states in India. And then he realized there are people who have been saved, but they have no vocation. So he started doing vocational training schools, and all of a sudden, this movement started to grow. And over the last 30 years, Abraham has planted over 600 churches all across India and in Nepal. Praise God, eh? All because of the partnership with this one Pittsburgh pastor. And many years later, he hadn't been to India, so 15 years later, he had been supporting them and all the work that they were doing. He got to India and he saw the work and he said, Abraham, I had no idea that this is the amazing work that God is doing through you. 
one man's little obedience can be traced in the fingerprints of all of these great works that God is doing in various parts of the world. So think about what Paul is saying. He's saying your obedience to kingdom partnerships results in as a catalyst to global praise to God. My friends, once we get a picture of what God is doing, we will say, God, please take everything I have. Take my family, take my children, take my career, take the gifts you've given me. I just want to be part of your great work that you are doing in the world. Will you pray with me? Will you bow your hearts? And if that's your prayer, would you just open up your palms before God and say, God, here's my life, here's my gifts, here's my family, here's every, I just want to be part of your great kingdom work. Use me, Lord. May my life be spent about your kingdom work. And Lord, may you release ACAC, may you release these, your disciples, to a new era of kingdom partnerships that impact your kingdom all across the world. Lord, we give you our lives, we give you everything you've given us, and we pray that you would bring a global harvest through this, and that you would use our lives to be a catalyst for global praise, that many all around the world will be Will, will result in thanksgiving for our small obediences. So Lord, give us faith to step out in obedience. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. 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 God bless you.